Hello, and welcome back to the Play On podcast from the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I'm your host, Taylor Bailey. Occasionally on the podcast, we like to take a departure and explore other exciting things happening in the world of Shakespeare. Today will be one of those days. When I sat down in the fall with our next guest, I was very excited to get to bring together two worlds I love, the world of Shakespeare and the world of Star Wars. Ian Dosher's William Shakespeare Star Wars lovingly combines these two universes. Ian is a longtime fan of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and was kind enough to sit down and chat with me while he was in town. Just to kind of start, I'd love for you to introduce yourself and uh, just, yeah, what it is that you do. Sure. I'm Ian Desher, and I'm the author of the William Shakespeare Star Wars series. So uh, William Shakespeare Star Wars takes the uh, the series, takes the six existing, so far, well, the six pre-existing Star Wars movies, uh, not yet the seventh, um, and rewrites them as though they're plays by Shakespeare. So they're in 5X, they're in iambic pentameter uh, mostly, and characters have soliloquies that aren't in the movies and... Uh, speaking asides and there are other various Shakespearean elements that I've tried to throw in as I go along. So when you say that the characters have soliloquies that aren't in the movies, so is, is it sort of fleshing out some subtext or, or backstory of the characters? Yeah, exactly. There's a moment in the original Star Wars movie when Luke Skywalker looks out at the two sons of Tatooine and he's just sort of stands there silently and we're left to imagine what he's thinking. And Shakespeare, of course, would never do that. Shakespeare is going to give you a soliloquy to let you know exactly what's on that character's heart. So Luke, at that point, explains what he's feeling. And so you hopefully get a little bit more insight into your favorite characters. Yeah, I mean, that's such an iconic scene from 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 A New Hope, the uh, of him and the and the two the two, the, the twin sons and mm-hmm. sons. Yeah. Right. Um, and so what is Luke thinking about in that moment? Well, that's the scene where he's he's really dreaming about going somewhere else. Um, uh, in fact, when I originally wrote that soliloquy, I had him speak the line, to go or not to go, that is the question, and thought that was just too painfully obvious, a Shakespearean <laughs> reference to, to put in. Um, but, uh, you know, so he's, so he's there thinking about how he's stuck on this planet and his uncle won't let him go to the academy this year. And, you know, he just longs for adventure, which he, of course, will get. By the end of the play, yeah. Well, so so what first drew you to Shakespeare? So uh, when I was in eighth grade, my brother, who uh, is four years older than me, was a senior in high school and was reading Hamlet. And you know, it, by eighth grade, you know that Hamlet is a big famous somethings out there. Uh, and so we were on a family trip to the beach, and I bought a used copy of Hamlet at a bookstore that we often stopped at, and sort of declared myself interested in Shakespeare. Uh, and then my, the next year in school, uh, my freshman year in my English class, we read Othello. So it was, I was already doing a lot of theater. So here we were reading a play in English class. So that was already cool. Um, and I was the nerdy kid who you know, was the first to raise his hand when we had to recite the soliloquy that, we, we, that we'd memorized um, for that play. And, uh, and it just, you know, something about Shakespeare... I think partially the language. Uh, that was the same year that we that our, my English teacher taught us about different poetic feet and that and you know meter and rhythm and all of that. And so that really spoke to me. And um, and that along with these you know great plays that Shakespeare was writing. You know Othello was the play we read that freshman year, and I just really loved the character of Iago. Whatever that says about me, you know he's such a good villain, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and so uh, just so terribly evil. And, uh, and so I was just captivated immediately. And, and then 
the summer after my sophomore year is when Kenneth Branagh came out with Much Ado About Nothing. And so it was a great time to be a young person getting into Shakespeare. So then I guess I, I would ask the, the, the other question then is uh, talk to me about Star Wars. When did you first get into Star Wars and what's that been in your life? So Star Wars is before I have memories because, uh, I mean, the, the earliest memory I have of Star Wars is seeing Return of the Jedi in the theater at age six with my parents. And I remember my uncle, who lives in Japan, uh, sitting in the row behind me, translating in Japanese to his wife as the movie went on. And even at that young age, I remember wondering how, like, what on earth he was saying for things like Jabba the Hutt and Ewoks and, you know, that sort of thing. But I'm sure that even before that, we had Star Wars figures. I know, I know I'd seen the other movies. And so I'm a child of that generation. So it was part of the air around me growing up. Uh, we, uh, so I knew the f- movies forward and backward and was excited when the prequels came out. And was, I mean, I was never so into it that I was, you know, the person who was reading all of the uh, Expanded Universe books. Um, and I really, frankly, didn't realize how large the Star Wars universe is until I uh, became a Star Wars author. Yeah, so that, I mean, a, a Star Wars author. So talk to me about how that happened, how you married these two worlds and where you got the idea of sort of looking at Star Wars and thinking, hey, this should be written in the hand of Shakespeare. So in the spring and summer of uh, 2012, three things happened right around the same time. I rewatched the Star Wars trilogy with my good friends. Um, and so we just sat down and, you know, in the space of, six hours or whatever, watch the three movies. And uh, and then not too long after that, I picked up Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which is one of these first mashup books that became really popular. Um, and uh, read that, and then two weeks later, my family and I came to Ashland for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Uh, and uh, not only then did I have Star Wars and Shakespeare and mashups sort of bouncing around in my head, Uh, But I also, uh, that season was when The Very Merry Wives of Windsor, Iowa was on. And uh, so not only had I just seen Shakespeare, but I'd also seen a really fun modern adaptation of Shakespeare uh, that I really enjoyed. And uh, was here in Ashland um, when I had the idea. Wouldn't it, I think it could work out really well to take Star Wars and rewrite it as though it were a play by Shakespeare. Um, And I, not too long after we got back from that trip, I... uh, looked up Quirk Books online because I knew that they were the ones who had published Pride and Prejudice and Zombies okay. uh, and a few other mashups. And their editor's email address is right there. And so I sent him an email and said, hey, I have this idea. I'm totally unknown to you. I've never published a book before. Hey, I have this idea. And he wrote back and said, that's an interesting idea. And of course, you'd have to get Lucasfilm's permission to do it. But if you write something, let me know and I'll take a look at it. So I had always hoped that at some point I would be... Um, writing books. Because of my academic background, I assumed they would be academic books. Um, uh, But here was a real-life editor saying, I'll read something if you write it. And so I spent the next few weeks writing up the first act of the the first book and uh, sent that off to him. And he called me that morning and said, I really want to do this. And we need to talk to Lucasfilm next. And so he got in touch with his contact there. And that's pretty much how it it took off. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So in the process of of writing these books. What did you discover about Shakespeare during that process? And also, what did you discover about Star Wars? What became new to you? I mean, on the Shakespeare side, I didn't want it to be a bad parody of Shakespeare. I think we see a lot of, 
you know, people add eth to the end of any word and yeah, they sort right. of say, I'm exactly. speaking Shakespeare now, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. And so I didn't want to do that because I'd seen that and wanted to do more honor to Shakespeare than that. So on that side, what I was learning was rules about Elizabethan grammar. Do you use certain verb endings? Um, what certain vocabulary meant, you know, where I thought because of how it was used in certain plays, I thought this word meant this, but in fact, no, it means this. Uh, trying to tease out some of the literary devices that he used. So, so just trying to immerse myself more in Shakespeare so that I could do a parody that still I would never say lives up to Shakespeare, uh, <laughs> but is at least a little more true to, to his mm-hmm. language. On the Star Wars side, it really is fun for a Star Wars fan to get inside the heads of these characters who you've grown up loving. I didn't realize, as an adult, I look back on Luke Skywalker in A New Hope, and he sort of seems like a whiny kid, right? I was going to go to Tashi Station and get some power converters, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. But you realize when you spend that much time with the movie, he is absolutely the hero of that movie. And really, I was surprised to find these resonances between him and Henry V, you know? So, uh-huh. uh, so uh-huh. that was... That was fun. Getting to patch up things that I felt like, you know, in Empire Strikes Back, Lando Calrissian is is all swagger. And you never get to see how is this man feeling about the fact that he's had to betray his friend, right? So getting to get into that, which isn't in the movies much. So it was just, I mean, on the Star Wars side, it was just really trying to get into the characters and think, what's going on for them right now? What is the arc of this character? That's so interesting. The idea of these moments of getting to get inside of the characters' heads and maybe answer some questions that you already had for yourself. I'm thinking about Return of the Jedi, right? And the fact that people have so many questions about that movie and less questions, I guess, and more criticisms about that <laughs> film. So I wonder if when you approach moments like that, are you are you thinking toward what others have said and criticized in the past? And how can I kind of maybe unify this a little bit more? Or To an extent, yeah. I mean, uh, and actually approaching the prequels, I would say there was even more of oh my that. Gosh, you know, absolutely. Right. So, yeah. so um, you know, thinking about how do you how do you take a character like Jar Jar Binks, who is probably one of the most hated characters in all of movie history, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, right and right. how do you take him and for people who don't like him, and there are plenty of people who do, right? But for people who don't like him, how do you take him and change him for them? Um, and I and I did that by at least trying to, you know, when he's talking to other characters, he's basically as he is in the movie, he's, he's stupid. Uh, mm-hmm. But when he's on his own, he's talking to the audience, you realize that he is actually sort of masterminding this, this whole thing where he sees the Jedi coming to Naboo as the chance for him to unite his people, the Gungans, with the people of Naboo, these two races of people who have been at war with each other. And that's his, that's his agenda. And he's mm-hmm. going, and he knows that humans have this prejudice that Gungans are stupid. So he says, I'm going to play into that prejudice uh, to, oh. to get them to do what I want them to do, right? Yeah. Um, so doing that and at least trying to, you know, you know, you hope that you're going to turn a few people around on, on that character. Yeah. Um, and other things like, you know, some of the dialogue between Padme and Anakin really trying to make it feel like they're really falling in love in a way that maybe in the movie's didn't quite succeed in. Yeah. yeah. Well, I find I, I think that that is interesting because I, I feel like just sitting here thinking about it that with the, um, the prequels um, that, you know, my my interest in them really waned after the first two films, uh, particularly because of my love for the original three. And a lot of that had to do with 
cinematic style for me. And a lot of those criticisms that happen about like overcrowding the scenes and getting mm-hmm. a little too carried away. So in a way, hearing you talk about uh, the prequels, I'm like, oh, I need to pick these up and read them because I may be way more interested in the story uh, than I think I am because I was so turned off by the, the film. So maybe looking at them in story form might unlock something for me. Yeah. And of course, the visual stuff I don't have to deal with as much. Right. right? Exactly. Because, yeah. 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 I love that, especially like getting inside of Jar Jar's head. I mean, not a lot of people would even want to. to <laughs> right. Most people assume um, there's nothing there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so oh, that's that's really great. So when you talk about the language and, and getting into this Elizabethan style, like I know you said you dug into, you know, reading Shakespeare and sort of looking at his approaches. But uh, what other research or, or work did you do in that realm or how does it connect to work that you do uh, in other aspects of your life. For years before writing these books, um, I had been writing various things where I was writing in meter. I mean, this sort of just gives you a good clear picture of what a nerd I am, right? Over the the years, I had written the occasional sonnet, which is not something that most people (laughs) do, right? Uh, And I made a, a pact with myself. And again, this is like the kind of thing that only super nerds do, right? I made a pact with myself about 10 years ago or so that if I was going to write in meter and in rhyme, I was no longer going to fudge it, right? And, and no longer going to fit extra syllables into my meter to, you know, to do what I wanted to do. I was going to take the time to actually do it right. And this was because 10 years ago, I had written uh, a couple of sermons uh, in verse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I did one that was sort of a parody on Green Eggs and Ham, where I feel like I fudge the meter a lot, you know, sure. and the rhyme for that matter, you yeah, know. Yeah. And so uh, sitting down then to write another one where I was doing a sort of takeoff on the night before Christmas uh, for a sermon the Sunday after Christmas, that was when I said to myself, look, if you're going to do this, you got to do it right and not, you know. So that having that background and making that sort of nerdly pact with myself yeah, yeah. Uh, all those years ago, I think helped a lot in coming to this. Um, and then also I was helped a lot by... A college professor, the one college professor I am still in touch with is the one who I took my only Shakespeare class from in college uh, by happy coincidence. And so I sent him the first uh, the first manuscript and he sent it back to me looking like a, an old college essay with his red writing all uh-huh. over it, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and he would do things like, you know, circle a word and say, uh, you know, it's... You can use this word if you want to, but Shakespeare only used it twice in all of his works. You might use this other word instead, right? So that depth of knowledge that I don't yeah. have because I'm not a Shakespeare scholar um, was really helpful. I mean, yeah. just really helpful uh, in helping me, you know, understand more about what I needed to be doing. So, huh? Yeah. So, so in terms of your your world, this is my Shakespeare world, and you know, other people don't know this about me, but yeah, I have a life outside of translating Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> And so so you kind of got into it a little bit by talking about writing sermons, but I'd love to hear you talk about your your work outside of this. Sure. So I, uh, I still work full-time for a, a marketing agency where I do a, um, I do a lot of their copywriting. Um, I do uh, work on their creative team, and I also uh, work with a lot of our nonprofit clients. So mm-hmm. that's sort of the mix of things that I do there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's something that... Uh, 
I feel like my life has been a series of strange twists and turns and marketing isn't something that I ever thought I was going to mm-hmm. get into, but have, and uh, it's been working for the last six years or so. So so that's fun because I get to be creative at work. Uh, I get to do some writing there also, uh, very different writing uh, than, than in the Shakespeare Star Wars books, but, mm-hmm. um, but still get to keep exercising that muscle. And then you brought up writing sermons and things like that, talking about your experience in theology and, and your work there. Sure. So so I have my Master of Divinity and uh, my PhD in theology and ethics, and uh, I'm an ordained Presbyterian pastor. Uh, and so, yeah, I've been um, preaching occasionally here and there uh, for many years and um, was uh, a Presbyterian, was a pastor of a church in Northeast Portland for a short time. So that's all been, all been part of the sort of... Uh, ongoing journey. That was after being a music major in college. So uh-huh. I've sort of really been all over the place. It's interesting because you 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 connect all of these things, right? Like what your work in marketing and your your background in music, your your work in theology and as a pastor in the Presbyterian Church and writing um writing in verse and in in uh in a Shakespearean style. Someone could see those things as all being very separate, but they have such an interesting connection to each other. Yeah. Like that background in music, like absolutely has to help as you're writing in verse. Right. And then as a, I imagine like as a pastor, as someone who spends time in like looking and interpreting the Bible, you find yourself dealing with heightened language all the time. Yeah. So it kind of makes sense in a funny way that I think people wouldn't expect that all of these things came together uh, and made this what you've created. Yeah, and truly the common thread is probably church music and the yeah. hymns that I grew up singing forever. Absolutely. Where not only are you using language that occasionally, you know, is is sounding a bit more Shakespearean than our modern language does, um, uh, but also you're, you know, it, just in the fact of learning how to sing, that's where the music comes in. And that's what, I mean, I think it's probably growing up it, doing a lot of singing in church that, made me want to be a music major later on. And and then also you learn about meter, right? Because mm-hmm. all of these hymn books have these metrical indexes in the back where you're seeing, uh, you know, that, gosh, there are a whole lot of, of hymns that are written in 8686, which is actually means, you know, a line of iambic tetrameter followed by iambic trimeter, uh, you know. And so that's where you learn, okay, Amazing Grace can be swapped out with Gilligan's Island because they're written in the same metrical index, right? And that's <laughs> yeah. all the same sort of thing that gives you the the ear for that. So mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. that's probably is the common thread through it all. And thinking about the work of Play On and the work that our playwrights are doing and sort of the goals, um, it strikes me that we're sort of doing the opposite of each other, right? Like that you're taking these modern texts and sort of bringing them backward in time and putting them in this... Uh, in a Shakespearean um, style, whereas we're doing the exact opposite of like taking Shakespearean um, language and bringing it forward, maintaining meter and all of the same ideas of, you know, needing to pay attention to to all of these things about verse, um, but sort of in the opposite. So I kind of think that's 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 really interesting. It is interesting, and yeah. uh, and and I mean, I will also say that I'm very conscious when I'm writing these books that I I know I can't. I mean, first of all, just on a sheer, I literally cannot as myself. I don't have the ability, but but also I shouldn't be going that far back, right? Sure, because sure. We, these books still need to be more accessible than Shakespeare is, I guess right. I would say. You know, I mean, I, I don't have the vocabulary uh, to use some of the words that he used that are now not used anymore, right? So, right. Uh, so 
just by virtue of the fact that I'm writing these in the 21st century, I'm not going quite as far back as, you know, yeah. as him. So maybe we're meeting sort of somewhere, somewhere in the middle in the there. Middle, yeah. yeah. Well, because yeah. it's just getting a little nerdy here for a second. But when, you know, Star Wars, of course, is not set in our world. And so the idea of Shakespeare's England and the 1600s and the Elizabethan era isn't a thing, <laughs> like, in, in the Star Wars universe. And so... Um, it has it's like an Elizabethan inspiration, but not an Elizabethan setting, really. Right. Yeah. I think about it sort of the same way. I mean, you see some of Leonardo da Vinci's uh, drawings of flying machines, right, and things like that. And it's like, you know, what if Shakespeare had one day just really had this crazy thought about, uh, <laughs> gosh, you know, what if there was this whole other world and there were a- aliens walking around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know? Yeah. That's sort of how I imagine that yeah. it ever could have actually been possible. Yeah. So Lucasfilms gives you the thumbs up and says, go ahead and do it. Was that a surprise to you? I just, I'm thinking about the fact that it's such a behemoth organization and so iconic. And then you're like, well, I have this idea. And they're like, sure. I mean, everything about this has been a surprise yeah. from <laughs> from the first moment, right? Uh, it's surprising that I'm sitting here in Ashland recording a podcast with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, yeah. which for me is like Mecca, right? <laughs> you know, so uh, yeah, so it was, you know, it was surprising. The first big surprise was getting something back from QuirkBooks where they were saying, we, we want to do this, yeah. you know, uh, and, then, and then to have Lucasfilm agree and, and really, I mean... When they reviewed what I had written at first, they came back to my editor and said, we like what he's doing so far, but we want to see if he can take the concept even farther. Go ahead and really have fun with it. Because what I had done was basically almost a translation job, right? I, of sure. Just taking the first fifth of that movie and translating it into a Shakespearean context. But, you know, many of us, I think, think of Lucasfilm as being, um, you know, they're very protective of their material, sure. of course, right? And so... I didn't want to do anything that was going to scare them off from this idea. They, in their wisdom, you know, know that if you're going to do a concept like this, you might as well go all the way with it. And so they gave that feedback and said, you know, can we see if he can, you know, take it back and, and do some more. And so that's where I went back and revised the first couple scenes of, of the book. And there you have C-3PO and R2-D2 on the rebel ship uh, in the opening scenes of A New Hope. And so I thought, wouldn't it be fun to have R2-D2 break into English in his asides to the audience, right? And so uh, that was one of the things I added in. I added in stormtroopers talking about going and getting drinks at Moss Eisley with Darth Vader and, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. So, and once we sent that revised draft back to Lucasfilm, uh, it was then that they said, okay, we'll, we'll license this, we'll work out the offer. And then QuirkBooks and Lucasfilm worked out the deal together. Yeah, yeah. that's so crazy. Yeah, totally <laughs> crazy, right? And so... And, and as the books have gone on, I've gotten bolder and bolder about the things that I'm trying, you know, mm-hmm. sort of figuring, you know, if Lucasfilm wants to say no, they can say no. And they have about certain things, but they've also let me, you know, make Jar Jar Binks smart and let R2-D2 speak in English. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so an example of something they haven't let me do, in A New Hope, I had a soliloquy that Darth Vader gives after uh, Governor Tarkin has decided to blow up Alderaan, basically. Uh, Darth Vader had this soliloquy originally where he was saying, I take no pleasure in the death of innocence. The death of innocence doth please me not. Something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't remember remember exactly what the line was. Mm -hmm. But it was the soliloquy about how he doesn't feel fantastic about going and killing innocent people. Um, And they came back and said, at this point in his 
character development. Darth Vader is totally evil. He would not have any, wow. you know, That's feelings of remorse. So it is so interesting, isn't it? Right? Yeah. And as a Star Wars fan, I'm sitting there going, oh my goodness. Really? They know their characters <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. well, right? That, uh, right? And so I turned that soliloquy around 180 degrees and have had him say, the death of innocence concerns me not, you know, and about sure. how he doesn't mind killing innocent people. So <laughs> Just imagining putting myself sort of in your position, the the exciting thing about that moment, too, is that it's not your work isn't being looked at by someone sitting at a desk. You're getting to people who are who are the keepers of the of the world. And yeah. um, and they're saying they're giving you some insight into into that. That's so cool. Yeah. And that's and that's I mean, been one of the fun things. Um, there's a guy at Lucasfilm who is sort of known as uh, he's known as the holocron keeper. And he's he's the one who maintains the whole story. Right. And uh, and. I know he has reviewed the books. He, in fact, when I first reviewed their notes on *A Phantom Menace*, uh, *The Phantom Menace*, he, in the first Jar Jar soliloquy, where we're realizing that Jar Jar is actually smart and is going to play dumb, mm-hmm. um, there was a, a note from my main contact at Lucasfilm saying, "Story group, is this okay?" Um, and then a comment from from them, you know, from from him uh, saying. We love it. Yeah, it's great. You know, so so like knowing that like there there it is. It was on the chopping block, right. and, and they said it was okay to sort of add that into the the universe. Like we've already said, it does feel like this institution of Star Wars and of Lucasfilm that it is such protected content. There is so much of that, but in a way, it almost feels like you got in simply by you had this idea to knock. You know what I mean? Like that they they were there. And they were interested, whereas I think most people wouldn't even think <laughs> like to knock on that door. Well, and I think it helped that I had a publisher, sure. you know, who was – I wasn't just take, taking the idea to Lucasfilm. It was a publisher who sure. was prepared to publish the book if they said yes, you know. Um, and that was dumb luck on my part. That was just I, I happened to think to go to the publisher first, um, and, and they happened to actually read their email. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So uh, as you, you kind of hinted at this earlier, but you have plans for Force Awakens? Uh, I am hopeful, and the truthful answer is I, I just don't actually know for sure yet. But it is something you would hope to be doing if, if you're given granted yeah, right. That's right. If I would love to keep on uh, keep on doing these as long as people are interested in reading them. Again, I'm seeing like connections between the, the work of Play On and really the work of anyone who is adapting Shakespeare – um, in any way, um, and this work that you're doing, because um, talking with our playwrights who are who are working with plays that he was writing at very different periods of his life, you're interacting with these these movies that were written and created in very different periods of time from each other, and and very different viewpoints, and so that that connection is really interesting to me of what it's like to traverse those different eras. Yeah, and it well, and what that makes me think of is they're all they were also the books themselves then are written in different parts of my life, right? So sure. Uh, so when I'm writing the Phantom Menace and giving Jar Jar this agency where he's trying to unite these two races, you know, and meanwhile things are blowing up in Ferguson, Missouri, and so he has this speech later on in the book where where the first fourteen lines of it are like me talking about white privilege in this country. And it fits within the context of the, you know, book once it goes on, right? But it's it's really me processing Ferguson there mm-hmm. on the page, uh, you know, in the, in the voice of Jar Jar. Yeah. Uh, and so 
but yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, when you look back at uh, something like um, Revenge of the Sith or Attack of the Clones, you know, I mean, George Bush was writing that in the Bush era, you know, and there's so much commentary on what's going on um, around him. And mm-hmm. uh, and now we're in a, a different time. Right. And so uh, it was interesting to think of how are these political themes still relevant and how are they not? The, the prequels are so political. They make me think so much of Shakespeare's histories. They um, are. You know, they're incredibly yeah. political. Yeah. So so you go to the to the movies, probably ex- as excited as the rest of us. To see The Force Awakens. Is it different watching the movies now because you've your brain has been working in this way? Like, were you sitting there watching it being like, oh, I could do it. Like, and being like, quit, quit. Just, I just want to enjoy it for a second. Probably not the, probably not the first time. Or, yeah. Or the second time. Uh, you know, by the fifth time or so. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly you start to look at, okay, uh, what are the, you know, like, oh my goodness, I know writing this scene with Han and Kylo Ren was mm. going to be, you know, would just be so juicy and so nice. And, and, um, you think about which characters, you know, heads you'd like to start getting inside of, right? I mean, what's, what's Ray thinking about is all of this stuff is her world has suddenly been turned upside down and yeah. she's such a strong female character and how can you really make sure that that's being expressed and, and yeah. that kind of thing. Um, so when, I, yeah. Huh. Because I think, too, one thing as you wrote the the originals um, and then the prequels was that you had the benefit of the knowledge of where things were going. And right. so going into this, it would it would almost be like, well, do you wait until until all three of these new films come out? Yeah, because how can you write about what is going on in Ray's head if you don't know? Because we still don't know so much about her, right? And that's a question that I've gotten from people: Are you, you know, are you going to do them right after the movies come out? Are you going to wait until uh, the whole trilogy is done? And I, th- I think, you know, assuming the books happen, I do think they'll happen as the movies come out. Yeah. But I, they also won't happen. You know, of course, me being a Star Wars fan, I was, we floated the idea past Lucasfilm. Hey, maybe you should let me have an advanced copy of the movie, and we'll <laughs> have the book come out. You know, in uh-huh. conjunction with the movie, right? And <laughs> Yeah, that idea was next. Uh, nice yeah. try. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but the other thing about the other six books is that there's also the benefit of having all the sort of cultural conversation around these movies. Yeah. You know, and these movies have been beloved for a long time and or, or disliked for some amount of time or whatever. You know, so um, and with this new movie, I mean, yeah, it's it's insofar as I'm going to be including things that are part of the conversation, it's all conversation that's still going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's it is. It is different in that way. Yeah. So what's next for you? Uh, most immediately, I've been asked by Marvel Comics to write an issue of Deadpool um, because uh, they are doing a, a special big issue where um, the first part of it will be sort of the ongoing adventures of Deadpool, but then uh, the next biggest chunk will be sort of dead, Deadpool encounters Shakespeare's world. Um, wow. So that's been really fun for me to work <laughs> on, you know, uh, and again, sort of thinking about that language thing, right? And and how far back you take it or don't take it, right? right. Uh, I feel like I'm not going. It's still Shakespearean, and it's still an iambic pentameter and uh-huh. all of that, right? But but Deadpool is known for being so sarcastic and so uh, you know and breaking the fourth wall all the time. And so you know, I'm putting all of these modern references into his mouth, into the mouth of other characters, uh, and also, at least in my mind, you know, the the people who are likely to be reading this are maybe not quite as, you know, interested in Shakespeare as somebody who picks up William Shakespeare's Star Wars would be. So trying not to make the language 
you know, even as as hard as maybe the my books were. Sure. And I don't think my books are particularly hard, but you know, just trying to take that edge off a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so that's been really fun, and that'll that'll be out in October. Yeah. Um, oh my and, gosh, that's yeah. really exciting. It's really it's really exciting. It's really fascinating to see all of these things connect. I mean, Deadpool. I, I wouldn't necessarily associate someone who has so much experience doing work in theology working with such <laughs> an incredibly vile and fabulous character. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really funny. I mean. As a parent, right? I can't let my kids watch the Deadpool movie. Yeah, right. right. Uh, and yet they know that I'm writing this thing, and <laughs> they can they can read it. They won't get some of the stuff that I'm writing, the the innuendo that I'm writing. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no idea what the Presbyterians will think of it, right? But uh, <laughs> uh, but it's it's really fun. Yeah. Oh, that's re- that's that's all really really exciting. Any favorite lines from that you've written? Oh, that I've written um, from any of the books. Well, one of the things I had to do, especially in the old movies, is, you know, there are so many fan controversies. And so the biggest fan controversy of all, even though it's a minor issue, right, is whether or not Han Solo shot Greedo first or whether Greedo shot first. Right. And so on one hand, you sort of have the fans who want one thing and Lucasfilm, who has an official version uh, on the other side. And so after Han shoots Greedo, I have him, uh, you know, say to the bartender, pray goodly, sir, forgive me for the mess and whether I shot first on there, confess. Uh, and so I sort of liked what I did there, uh, yeah. walking that walking that line. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, this has been so great. I, I've so enjoyed listening to you talk about it and um, talk about the process and just just how this world, how these worlds all came together for you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been really fun. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to the Play On podcast. A special thank you to Ian for sitting down and chatting with me. William Shakespeare Star Wars is available here in Ashland at the Tudor Guild Bookstore, at booksellers around the world, and of course, online. The Play On Podcast is produced at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival by myself and recorded and edited by Saibi Kalsa. OSF's artistic director is Bill Rausch, and our executive director is Cynthia Ryder. Play On is directed by Dr. Louis Douthat and supported by a generous grant from the Hits Foundation. I'm Play On's assistant director, Taylor Bailey. And thanks for listening.